I heard Naomi Klein, who I really deeply appreciate and the work she's doing on YouTube in one of my um, nights of insomnia, which is always so mixed because of course there's some part of me that would love to sleep. And then on the other hand, I get to learn so much by listening to YouTube when I don't. <laughs> anyway, so Naomi Klein was talking about um, her, her different books, The Shock Doctrine, and then No Isn't Enough or whatever her next book was. And, um, and she said, I feel my work is to keep talking about this, even when it's not that clear what my path is or my place in the path. It, the, the, um, my work is to lift up this critique of, uh, that needs to be lifted up around the climate, around capitalism, around the profit motive and, um, and our well-being and our freedom. And I really appreciated that because it reminded me of one of the invitations the Buddha offers us but not just the Buddha, I think the lineage of freedom, in what are the conditions for the cultivation of the beautiful qualities or the cultivation of the heart. And it is lifting up, lifting up, even if it's the same words over and over again, the teachings of freedom and that offering, that listening, over and over again together in the different fluidity of our Sangha and the different fluidity of different teachers offering, just that, that offering and that listening to um, each of our teachings, Naomi Klein's mind through the lineage of Ruth, through Ubikin to the Buddha, of that offering and naming. And at some point, trusting that being in this process together of listening, of inquiring, of contemplating, in itself will, will support greater clarity. And from that clarity, what the actions are that are need, to take, need to be taken for our world and for our communities and for ourselves. And um, so I wanted to frame that, that, you know, sometimes when we label our sharing Q&A or group inquiry or a Dharma talk, a Dharma talk, it doesn't always hold the whole context of this is part of the preparation of the building of the conditions of awakening in, in that drop, 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 you know, of a faucet where it's leaking, drop, drop, drop. And um, I really uh, feel very close to that because 
I thought my septic system was filled. Actually, it wasn't filled, but I thought it was filled. So I was, I was like taking every dish of water from the bathroom and the kitchen out by hand because it, I thought the septic system was full, was full. And so it was just bubbling back up in the sinks. And it was amazing to me how quickly those bowls of water filled up, you know, just like so quickly. And I, and I think when I back off from my own practice um, story or um, time and contemplate it, it's so, it becomes clearer how every moment of intention or connection of listening to a Dharma talk, reading a book or inquiring together or of trying to or intending to practice non-harming, that all of that has built the So I wanted to acknowledge those building blocks and, um, uh, and the beauty of it and how the, even when we feel like we're not getting anywhere, even when it feels like, oh, that was a waste or whatever, that that, that so I'm so sorry about this. We've been having really a lot of difficulty with our wireless here in the desert. So it goes in and out. So anyway, let me begin again. This is from an anthology of the Buddhist teachings on Nirvana. And it's, this is the quote. There is, oh, there is an island which you can't go beyond. It is a place of nothingness a place of no possessions, of non-attachment. It is the total end of death and decay, and this is why it's called nothingness. And, um, and I love, I, I felt so um, moved by uh, this invitation the Buddha was offering us of, what is nothingness? Because it's not a vacuum. It's not like suddenly we don't exist. But it's more this way that the mind makes a thing of anything. It makes a thing of our bodies and it makes a thing of what I think I should look like. And it makes a thing of how I think... Um, about myself and it makes a thing of how I think about other people, really, it, the, the Buddha, when he says in the second noble truth that attachment or clinging is the root of the opposite of freedom and nirvana, he's saying the same thing, but in these different words, which just touched me so much because it felt like it, named something in a slightly different way, which is that whenever I make a thing, and I can sense that, right? And we can sense that. Whenever something becomes a thing in our mind or our body, then at least we know, like we're lifting it up. We know, oh, this is what 
the obstruction to my peace and my freedom of this is the obstruction of nirvana because nirvana and just to say what was what um i spoke about at the beginning of this day that nirvana isn't about a thing it's not like this gift wrap box of peace or of um um, or of joy, or of happiness. It's really about the relatedness. And in the quality of our relatedness comes, in the relationship comes the experience of peace. And that's why when Linda, you talked about distraction, just to sort of bring it right down to the reality of what we experience in our body or of pain and discomfort, that nirvana isn't about not experiencing those things, right? Nirvana is about the quality of relationship to those things. And, and, and that when we feel like something is a thing, and I can tell that from the way I talk about it, whether I'm talking about it internally or talking about it externally to someone, and someone says, well, how are you? And I notice that tone in my voice, right? That I'm making, making something into a thing. Then that's clear to me that it really isn't about the thing. Even if I can't quite get out of the thingness of it, at least I know, and that's what um, she was talking about in her box about the quality of relationship. It's that at least I know and I'm lifting up to myself, oh, this is what's happening. I'm making it into a thing. And if I'm making it into a thing, then at least I know that I'm creating a relationship that doesn't allow for peace and happiness. And that, even though I don't know about you, but I know how much of the time I'm making different things into a thing, there is something so beautiful about naming it, about naming the map and of saying, oh, this is what's happening. And in that acknowledgement, and here's the next step of our journey of coming home to ourselves, right? In the next step of saying, oh, I'm making a thing. Then, then the next step is, is it possible to allow it that this is where I am? Like something is going on that's deep or karmic and I'm making a thing out of it. Because if I'm making a thing out of it, and in the acknowledgement it doesn't just dissolve, then there's something bigger going on. And then I get to acknowledge that, oh, I'm on a journey of the Eightfold Path, which is the journey and the path of purification. 
And I haven't completed the cycle of purification of this thing or of the multiple things living in my life, right? That are things, problems, um, or places I want to be. And that's how it is in this grand universe of the, all these planets and stars in these places are the places of a journey yet to be completed. And when we, when we get to be able to name it and say it that way, then there's some grace and love that's right there, right? Holding us. Because we're naming truth and reality. And so I both love the Buddha's invitation of that freedom is the no thingness, that, that, that naming the mind moments we've had when there hasn't been a thing or a problem or anything other than this moment living. That is no greed, hatred, and delusion. And each one of us has had moments of that. And the Buddha is building on those moments, right? And saying, yes, important for you to acknowledge that we've had those experiences because we're building on that, that memory, that understanding, that capacity. And then we're also naming when those conditions aren't present and there's the thing that's happening that sense of creating solidity or a problem out of something and i'm not saying that it's easy to dissolve the thingness because we're talking about many lifetimes and lineages of um, handed down to us from our ancestors that we've carried on and, and carried on consciously and unconsciously. And so we find ourselves, as we turn towards ourselves, saying, yeah, I didn't even know I had this thing as a problem, but people are sharing with me it's a problem. And I'm looking and I'm like, yeah, I was totally unaware of that. Wow. I was totally unaware of the impact of that. So, and now that I know, I get to place it in this journey among the many, many stars and planets, some of which are in journey and some of which, some moments were complete in themselves. And they're part of this universe of mine and yours. So, trying very carefully to lift my papers up so there isn't a lot of paper rustling. <laughs> 
So then I wanted to, I wanted to bring in just um, four of the primary obstacles to those moments of no thingness, to the moments of nirvana that have been lived and can be lived uh, for ourselves. And the, the four places where we get caught and, and make things out of, of life is one, seeing the impermanent as permanent. And just to say that, that is so deep, right? Because we are in the middle of having that misunderstanding and misperception being challenged by COVID-19. And I watch inside of myself that, that wishing to return to the normal of how it was before and how deep that wish and desire is. And, and these teachings are supporting us to acknowledge that this is the nature of life, that there is no returning because everything is in the flux and change. Something um, came up as I was talking about this and it was a retreat that I did with um, a teacher who, um, was really quite an, um, uh, an important teacher to me, Christopher Titmus, but isn't teaching anymore in, in, this, in this part of the world. And it, he, in the early days of his teaching in the 70s, he was really experimenting. And one of those experiments was that we would, we would be, you know, we'd, we'd come into the hall, we'd have our places. And then he would say, when you come back, choose any place. And that, you know, included someone else sitting on your cushion. And it was like, it was such a challenge in wanting the predictable and wanting my cushion and wanting things to be controlled and known when the actual reality is and we're experiencing this now, that it can't be. And not that our wish for predictability, and I was talking about this yesterday, is bad, but to acknowledge, to acknowledge the comfort it brings. And I get up every morning and I go to the kitchen in my pajamas, I put on the kettle, I get the teapot down, I put my big teaspoon of tea in the teapot. I, I, I do the same actions every day pretty much unless I'm traveling. And there's a kind of comfort in it and an ease. Not to mistake this comfort and ease for an opening to being present because when I'm present, it's a different experience. When I'm fully present, 
it isn't that habitual flow of movement. And coming into the zendo and aiming for my cushion most often is not held in presence. It's held in that habitual movement. This is my cushion. I'm going to it in the meditation hall. Or, oh, it's light. I'm getting up to make my tea. And I really practiced doing it differently because I knew I was going to talk about it this morning. And whoa, it was like swimming against a tidal wave, you know, to really be present just after I'd woken up to all these different actions. But it felt different. And so this invitation to not confuse the predictability and the comfort, the ways that we do things to make things comfortable for ourselves with awakening. And again, not to say that it's bad, but just not to get confused about it. Because in a way, we're trying to manage impermanence rather than to let go and to be fully present. So when the Buddha invites us to not confuse the impermanent with the permanent, there's this invitation of being willing to say, I know I'm going to die. We know each one of us on the Zoom meeting is going to die. Given that, and given that I have to face this big impermanence, am I willing to face something much easier this moment in my life? And now this moment. And am I willing to turn towards it as a moment of change, never to be repeated? Am I willing to be this vulnerable? And if I am, just maybe for moments, then that's where home is. And it's palpable and real, that sense of, oh, I'm in my life embodied at home. Some of you, I, I think Jean um, sent me this book, such a beautiful book on Mingo Rinpoche's journey. Um, the, um, part of the book is about Mingo Rinpoche's journey. He decided to do a traditional a journey where you leave everything behind and you um, go on a journey with very with just enough money to get you on your journey and then you're you are totally vulnerable no money no food and so he ended up going to a train station in India and um, I think it was Varanasi but I forget and, um, and first he ate at a restaurant once every day. And the last time he went, he didn't have any food, so he begged for the food. 
and they gave him some food and he ended up being really sick. He was vomiting and had diarrhea and he was sitting in the train station and he realized that he was dying. And in that moment, he said to himself, let me die then. I'm dying. Let me, let me turn towards this death. And in that turning, in that willingness to say, okay, I'm not fighting anymore. I'm going to turn towards this ending. His mind opened. And of course, we hope that we don't have to get that sick to respond to that same invitation to turn fully towards ourselves, at least with the intention. Whether it happens, no problem. Whether there's an opening or not, if there's a big thingness in the way or not, no problem. But that wish and that intention over and over again and it reminds me of lifting all that dirty water from all my dishes and carrying it out in a little bowl because I carried it out in a big bucket the first day and hurt my back. So then it was like over and over again, carrying my little bowl, opening the door, closing it quickly so none of the insects could get in because I have a wasp nest right outside and throwing it and then coming back and doing the same thing over and over again, turning towards what's required and saying, am I really willing to be here in this life, in this moment? And that's it, just the invitation. May I be, and if I can't, no problem. I deeply appreciate that I offered myself the invitation of nothingness. And I understand by offering the invitation, I'm building the conditions for my freedom. And not just for my freedom, but for you all's freedom too, because we're so connected. So um, uh, I, I should I go on because we're ending at one, or should I stop and we could do meta to end with meta up, Dharma talk down, just like Dharma talk down. Yes, more Dharma talk. Okay. So seeing the impermanent um, in, in, in the permanent. And then the second one is perceiving the not beautiful in the beautiful. Uh, and as we perceive the beautiful and the not beautiful, that becomes the conditions for attachment. And it could even be that we perceive the not the um the beautiful and the not beautiful as something beautiful like i 
look at the way my books are arranged in my living room with some of the, my artwork and other artwork people have given me. And I do not see it as not beautiful. I see it as beautiful. And, and that in that, in that, not just appreciation, but in the ownership of it, comes the obstruction. So we experience particularly the beautiful in the not beautiful um, with our bodies. And you probably have all heard the story, but because it's so apropos, I'm going to offer it, that there was this very, very beautiful courtesan who was attracted to the teachings and came to see the Buddha. And the Buddha saw into her mind and understood what her obstruction was. It was the attachment to her body, seeing the beautiful and the unbeautiful. And so he showed a, a psychic image of her aging into her death. And it's so, it's so, um, and it doesn't mean in the it doesn't mean that I don't deeply appreciate my body or my books, but it is asking me, is there attachment there? And that's what the Buddha is inquiring into. Wherever, wherever we experience something as beautiful, and it could be those non-gluten chocolate mint pies it could be our books it could be our body it could be our clothes it could be art or music not that they don't bring delight but is in that relationship like the controlling are we trying to use it as a way to control experience when all the beautiful is actually impermanent and changing. So what do we ex what do we experience as beautiful? And how do we use it as a way to control life? Now I'm not saying, and the Buddha isn't saying not to have joy in what is beautiful as long as we understand that it's going to be impermanent and that that impermanence is either in our death or in the dissolution of whatever it is that we're experiencing as beautiful. It'll come to an end. And music, what we eat, whatever it is, it'll come to an end. So placing, when, we, when we're cultivating joy in what is beautiful, placing it in the context that we know it's impermanent and how that changes our appreciation because it changes the relationship from ownership and control into presence and appreciation. 
So that's the second. And then the third is, third is believing in the enduring and solidity of ourselves, of our actions, speeches, uh, what we've said and beliefs, and the desire to perpetuate ourselves and to continue to assert ourselves as a self. And that's considered one of the greatest obstacles to Nirvana. So, um, this is such an amazing and deep and beautiful invitation because it asks us to inquire into and to be alert into everything where we feel entitled. I'm entitled to this view because they are so messed up. This person or that person, or I'm entitled to my stand around climate change because they're so messed up. I'm entitled to my access to certain things, to my cushion in the meditation hall. I'm entitled to quiet when the neighbor is making a noise. Wherever there's that sense of entitlement, that's where our heart becomes blocked from the expression of freedom and peace. So we, we feel entitled to our feelings. We feel entitled to our thoughts. We feel entitled to our bodies. We actually can feel entitled to everything. And um, it's such a beautiful inquiry to begin to say, oh yeah, I notice, I notice this entitlement. Just that, I notice it. Because if I notice it and acknowledge it, then again, it allows me to begin to relate to it differently. So um, I, this is really funny. So I know everyone is supposed to get a check from the government because of COVID-19. And I noticed this entitlement and I thought, so where's my check? It was so great. That immediate ownership, this is me and this is mine. So I think that maybe is, um, that maybe is enough for now. And um, I would like to, um, uh, I would like to, I think I, I, I would like to read a traditional blessing to end with. It goes like this. Through the goodness that arises from my practice and through this act of sharing, may all desires and attachments quickly cease. That means sharing our merit of our practice. May all desires and attachments quickly cease and all harmful states of mind until I realize nirvana. In every kind of moment, may I have an upright mind. 
with mindfulness and wisdom, austerity and vigor, may the forces of delusion not take hold, nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my refuge, and unsurpassed is the protection of the Dharma. The Buddha is my guide, and the Sangha my support. Through the supreme power of all these, may darkness and delusion be dispelled. So let's, do you want to end with 10 minutes of meta, or would you like 10 minutes of Q&A? Meta up, Q&A down. Met, meta, Q&A, meta, Q&A. Which was up? No, I forget. Down is what? Did I say? Down is Q&A, up is meta. Oh, I think Q&A won. Okay. So do and maybe we should unmute. Everyone should unmute and whoever has a question who wanted to do Q&A um, for these last few minutes, go ahead. Yes, Jean. Um, you didn't get to the fourth obstacle. Yes. So can you guess what it is? No. <laughs> Something about delusion or ignorance? Uh, um, so it's not believing that karma is um, a law. So it's life is a random process. When you think life is a random process where skillful and unskillful actions do not bear fruit. Ah. We believe we're isolated and not affected by anything we do or say. <laughs> That's probably wow. a lot of people in our in our. Um, Government. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs>